This podcast contains swear words and two brothers discussing how to make their behavior fit their beliefs. It seems polite to warn you. Do you think teaching philosophy to kids in elementary school would would make a better society? And learning how to craft logical arguments um, and, and have discourse that way? Yes, absolutely. Because think about algorithmic structures that govern what we see on most of the platforms we use online. These algorithms are not designed to show you logical arguments. They're not designed to show you um, balanced portrayals of complex issues. They're designed to show you things that will spike your nervous system as quickly as possible. And in order to do effective, like logical thinking, in order to consider objections to your argument, this is another thing we learned in the logic class is to say, consider the best objection to your argument. Don't consider a weak objection. That's like, that's straw man stuff. It's like, here's what my opponents are saying. That's not really what they're saying, but here's what it, I'm going to say that they're saying. And obviously that's hogwash as opposed to going down a real path of like, oh, here's an argument against what I'm thinking. That is a really good one. And I'm going to contend with this argument and allow it to strengthen my argument, right? Really considering this contrasting opposing viewpoint. Yes. In Plato, I'm excited to read Plato's Republic because he basically makes the argument that like leaders should be trained in philosophy. <laughs> There's some quote of his that uh, I'm going to totally misquote this, but it's like, the, we won't have really peaceful, prosperous societies for everybody until either leaders learn philosophy or philosophers become leaders. Mm. That's good parallel structure on that sentence too. Right. It's a good right. tagline, which is, which is interesting. <laughs> is that logical or is that just a good tagline that I saw on Instagram? Well, syllogistic logic is very tagline-y. Like that the basic form being A is B, B is C. So A is C. Gotcha. So a good tagline is logical is what I'm hearing. Yeah. I think a good tagline can be logical. doesn't have to be though. Could be, could be uh, full of yeah. false, falseness. You know? Falseness. Falsities. Falsifications. Dude, that's a good warm up. I'm going to tell you an off color joke before every show now. And just like, <laughs> let's tear it apart with logic. For real, though, I actually think this is a valuable thing to do because, yeah, a lot of times, again, actually my nervous system might be spiked by somebody telling in a joke that I find offensive. And that spike in my nervous system has kind of discombobulated me enough that I can't come up with the logical, reasonable ways to explain to this person that they're full of crap, you know? <laughs> and, and so I just feel like saying, you're full of shit. Stop being such an asshole, you know, which maybe spikes that person's nervous system. And so they don't want to engage with it anymore. And it's this big old, I've, big uh, old nervous system spiking fest. I've, I've said something similar to you after many arguments. Shut up. <laughs> Argument <laughs> over. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Haven't I? Yes, you have. And I think that's why it's, <laughs> it is unreasonable to expect every human or maybe even any human to like be able to kind of regulate themselves enough to have all the 
reason at hand and to go through things calmly. I mean, sometimes sometimes people need to like protect themselves from somebody who they perceive as dangerous. Do you explain to the person trying to kill you why it's a philosophically bad idea to kill you? Probably not. I think Socrates would Socrates probably would, though. He would do that. In, in fact, <laughs> it's a fucking great segue into the Socrates quote I want to share today from The Apology, one of Plato's dialogues. And in The Apology, uh, apology, I don't know the exact um, etymology of this, etymology of apology, but the, the apology is not like an apology saying sorry in terms of our modern language. It's like a more, means more literally the explanation or something like that. And this is where Socrates stands trial. He stands trial in the, in the Euthyphro dialogue. He's meeting Euthyphro outside the courthouse. And then he goes into the courthouse. And this is what he's been accused of is corrupting the youth and um, like making them believe in false spiritual things. And so Socrates uh, in the Apology sits down and says, wow, I marvel at the people who told such fantastic lies about me. <laughs> One of the things he says is like, um, they think I'm so, they call me an accomplished speaker. I'm not an accomplished speaker unless an accomplished speaker is the man who speaks the truth, which is good. But then mm -hmm. he comes down to this. He's, he's talking about his, um, the origin of the slander against him. And so he, he also describes that he, had a visit with the oracle that the oracle who everyone takes really seriously in this time said that Socrates is the wisest person in all of Greece. And wow. this news gets to Socrates and he's like, no fucking way. No way. Am I the wisest person that can't? And so in order to, but he doesn't want to just like blaspheme against the oracle. He's like, I believe what that the oracle says is true. Right. So, so what do I do with this information? If I really feel like this is wrong, <laughs> But the oracle is saying it. And so his solution is he says, well, I'm going to go around and talk to people and, you know, about complicated issues and discover what they know. And surely in this process, I will discover people who know more than me, who are wiser than me. And <laughs> so he's like, when I examine people, um, there's no need for me to tell you his name. He's one of our public men. My experience was something like this, quote, I thought that he appeared wise to many people, and especially to himself, but he was not. I then tried to show him that he thought himself wise, but that he was not. As a result, he came to dislike me, and so did many of the bystanders. So I withdrew and thought to myself, I am wiser than this man. It is likely that neither of us knows anything worthwhile, but he thinks he knows something when he does not. Whereas when I do not know, neither do I think I know. So I am likely to be wiser than he is to this small extent that I do not think I know what I do not know. End quote. I fucking love Socrates. It's, it's fascinating, cool stuff. So like more and more, I embrace Socrates idea about learning that we mentioned in one episode where it's like learning is just recollection of what you already know. When Socrates says something like that, it does feel like I already know this. And yet how often in our world, in the incendiary pieces that people write or post in short characters online, 
how often are we encouraged to speak authoritatively and decisively about things that we don't know shit about? You and I will disagree. What's good for you is not good for me. I'm talking philosophically. What's good for you and me? I'm talking philosophically. Welcome to Philosophically Sound, where we explore the music people like and learn to love the music and people we explore. I'm Tony, music teacher, aspiring philosopher, Renaissance Jesus lookalike, and dangerously creative chef. And I'm Gus, Tony's younger brother, training and development professional, amateur drummer, aspiring astronomer, an incredibly limber wedding date. That I know that to be true from observing you on many weddings. That's very good. We're talking about the Billboard Music Awards today. And the Billboard Music Awards are a little unique in that they use primarily sales data and other kind of like uh, data that shows how many people are listening to songs to give awards. So it's not actually even really like a secret the day the awards come out. If you've been accessing the same data information that billboard accesses you would pro you might know although they have some complicated formulas that they use behind the scenes that are a little secretive so we're going to talk about this and and this is going to get into money and value like is and the word best right we're always confirmed we're always concerned with the word best here on the show because we're thinking like is beyonce the best singer ever yes or is beyonce the best singer ever for me yes <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> the answer to everything is yes. And it's like we also recently made a distinguishing, uh, just a distinction rather, between comparative preference like that, using the best, the superlative kind of preference, like, oh, nobody plays a better solo than Jimi Hendrix, right? Yes. You're making a claim about Jimi Hendrix in reference to a bunch of other musicians, which again, that's highly unlikely to be true because of the large amount of guitarists. But I think we could even, I would like to argue that it's demonstrably untrue because by saying that you're assuming that whatever your preference for best guitar solo is, is shared by every other person who has an opinion about such things. And that I think is, is incredibly unlikely. There's no way that 8 billion people on the planet listen to a series of even, let's just pick like 10 guitar solos and get a big enough sample group of like a, just a billion people. No way is everybody going to agree that one particular solo is the best, right? They're going to have different preferences, different reactions to how those solos are played that are based on their own musical context. What do people learn in their own lives as kids? What's their experience playing guitar? If you play guitar, you're probably going to have a different opinion about what a really good guitar solo is as if you don't play an instrument or if you play some other instrument, right? 
So and this is only important. <laughs> In fact, I'm listening a lot to the Unmute podcast right now. Unmute podcast. I highly recommend it. It's a bunch of people with PhDs in philosophy just asking each other questions and giving answers. I feel like I'm learning a lot all the time and getting practice like listening to other people express their ideas. I'm often pleased to hear philosophers kind of ramble on with an answer for eight minutes because like there's a lot of detail to get in there. I'm like, yeah, that's what I do too. Yes, yes, you do. <laughs> yes, 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 you do. Somebody on the Unmute podcast said about philosophy recently that philosophers are taking the simple and making it complex <laughs> in order to question assumptions, which is something you said to me, I think, in like our first prelude episode too. <laughs> yeah. So And so this whole idea, right? It's like, well, duh, of course not everybody shares the same preferences. So what? The so what is this? If like more money flows to what some people think of as the best, that's less money that gets to flow to other music that might be very, very good and valuable to other people with different preferences who don't have that kind of control and power over where the money flows. That's going to be one of the arguments that I'll return to, but that I'll also tell you I don't know about today in today's episode. Also, you're probably going to get to this, but but you know, talking about who controls what makes money and the billboard charts um, – Definitely like like I was reading, they had they had to adjust their rating system many times over to kind of make it fair. And as music evolved and the way people consumed music evolved, like from from jukeboxes to streaming to CDs to whatever, they, yeah. they had to adjust these metrics uh to sampling, you know, to make it uh quote unquote fair uh for people, um, for artists yep. and things. Yep. Right. And actually, the concept of fairness came up um, in some of my reading about this. One blog post argued that the Billboard Music Awards are more fair than the Grammys because the Grammys might, even if they use a big number of, I think it's like 13,000 music industry professionals make up the academy that uh, select songs, nominate songs, and then vote on those songs for Grammy Awards. This blog pointed out that... Um, that oppressed groups and minorities win fewer album of the year Grammys than white artists, which they're like, that's probably because you got a bunch of white people voting inside the Academy, right? Mm. It's like that could be explained there as opposed to the Billboard Music Awards, which tends to have a bit of a more, it's still a little predominantly white, but it's got, it's got more representation from the world. It's calculating like world listening metrics into its final calculation. So maybe that's a little more representative of the 8 billion folks on the planet. It's probably why K-pop was kicking ass. Yeah, the K-pop videos were really cool. Just loving the choreography, loving the style, loving the vocals. The vocals yeah. were so smooth and high. Just like real nice. Yeah, I agree. Good outfits too. But all this depends on what's the definition of fair? What does well, it mean to be fair? That right? sounds philosophical. <laughs> exactly. And the Billboard Music Awards might just say like, well, it's fair if it, it's fair if it reflects what the most people listen to. So we'll talk more about what happened on like the show, the digital presentation of the show 
and the artists a little bit later. I want to start with just a little bit of context about how the hell do they calculate this shit? How does this work? There's a little bit of history here. Um, Great question. You could go somewhere else for even deeper uh, analysis on this. We'll post some links in the doobly-doo that you can that you can dig into at your own own pace. So what they, how they calculate this, I read a couple different articles on this, and I think I have a basic, uh, basic and sound understanding of it. They're combining a, a couple different criteria. There's sales, and that's physical sales of CDs and records. Yes, people still buy those things. It's high-quality audio. I do. I do. And digital sales, of course, both of albums and singles. Then there's airplay, and we mean radio airplay here. Radio and streaming are still separate categories. Okay. Um, so radio is a category is considered. Then streaming, and streaming includes Spotify. It includes YouTube. It includes Pandora. It includes, you know, everywhere you can stream. There's, I think it's Nielsen SoundScan is a company that's tracking all these things and feeding that information to Billboard. And so they're looking at all of this data for each individual song. You know, I'm sure they're not looking at each song. They're looking at ones that break through a certain threshold um, because of the hot 100. It's not the hot, you know, 1 billion. <laughs> As we know, we could spend, what was it, like 10 lifetimes <laughs> listening to all the music that's released on Spotify and not get through all of it. Yeah, I think I think it, it's it's like twice as much music being released per day as there are hours in the day, <laughs> yeah. something like that. Incredible, right. So... Um, on, on on a billboard blog, actually, I got they gave a few percentage estimates. They said what it might what might represent a song's position on the Hot 100 chart of the week is about 35 to 45 percent of sales. So close to half there, maybe. Okay. Then 30 to 40 percent might be radio play, and 20 to 30 percent might be streaming. So streaming generally has the least weight, but then. It goes on to to explain that it really does depend. The song Wrecking Ball, which I think came out in 2012, they were using this example, had 36 million streams in the first week of its release. This can be a little contentious with people because YouTube counts as streaming. Having a banging music video can really rocket you to the top of the streaming category. And if you've seen mm. the music video for Wrecking Ball, it's kind of iconic. Miley Cyrus is naked, grabbing onto a wrecking ball, f destroying a building. It's like, it's kind of, it's an incredible concept, well executed. And I love that song. So, <laughs> so 36 million streams in one week. That rocketed it to the top of the Hot 100 list, even though there was only like 2% of that ratio was radio play. That kind of makes sense. It just came out that week. Huh. Radio stations are actually slow to adopt new music because they're buying their own copy of the music, sifting through music they might actually want to play. That comes later. So they gave a couple other examples um, of songs that might not have had lots of streaming at first, but tons and tons of sales in the week of their release that might indicate a highly engaged fan base with that artist or something. So the different three, the three different categories aren't necessarily an equal part of why a song ends up on the Hot 100 chart, but it's some mixture of those things, and the the exact mathematics of it appear to be a trade secret of Billboard Music Awards, um, just like the identities of each member of the Voting Academy and the Grammys. So there's still some amount of like secretiveness about the process. Hmm. That gives us an okay idea of like how it works. 
Um, a little bit. Oh, yeah. A different blog on some, on a site called Inside the Industry gave a I don't know how accurate this stuff is. I didn't find it anywhere else, but it gives a couple like example numbers, which I found sort of useful. So if you sold 500 copies of your album in one week, that would probably be enough to get you somewhere onto the Hot 100 chart. And I listened to that number 500 and I'm like, huh, that doesn't seem like that a lot. But also like probably, I wonder how many people are buying the same album in the same week. That probably only rarely happens with real mega artists, you know? People who already have an established track record. Kanye West puts out a new album. I'm sure he's selling at least 500 copies in one week, right? Taylor Swift, yeah. gotta be. Gotta be like way over that number, I would think. Yeah, I mean, I feel like if you sold 500 copies of your album in one week and then zero the next week, you know, probably nothing. But they're, they're probably saying like average 500 copies a well, week. Well, the Hot release. 100 chart changes every single week. It's a weekly chart. So 500 gotcha. in one week might be enough to get you on. And then maybe you're, maybe you're number six that week or something because you also had good streaming and radio play. Next week, it's like, yeah, zero sales, drops way down. Maybe you dropped to 99. That's the sort of thing that can happen week to week with certain songs. That's another factor of the Billboard chart. They'll actually put little arrows, up arrows or down arrows next to songs, next to songs that have been on the chart multiple weeks in a row. And they even have a policy that takes, I forget the number on this, but like any song that's been on the chart steadily for 25 or 30 weeks or something, they just stop putting it on the chart to like make room for other songs. Interesting. Which is, that's an interesting policy, right? I bet, I bet not everybody agrees with that either. I kind of like that idea because I like the idea of making room for more music to make more money. Yeah. Because I don't really believe, I don't fully trust the invisible hand of the market if you will, to, to do, okay, well, clearly all the best musicians will make the most money. End of story. Let the market handle it. I don't think it's that simple. It's like when you have a lot of money, it allows you to make more money more easily. That's like the shortest logical argument I've ever made. You're welcome. <laughs> Very concise. So here are some of the other numbers. So it could be 500 album sales in a week, could be from 500,000 to 1.5 million streams in a week. That might be comparable to 500 album sales. And yeah, so then they give this kind of rough translation between things like one album sale might be equal weight to get on the chart as 10 song sales might be equal to 1500 song streams. So it's kind of ideas. And that makes basic sense to me, I think, when we, if we're calculating money, what music's making money, you don't, you're making like fractions of cents on stream, individual streams, as opposed to an album sale might be 10 to 20 to $30, depending on what people are paying for it. Another interesting aspect is that I think in 2020, pretty recently, Billboard stopped counting bundled sales for artists. This was actually a thing that Billboard would claim that artists were doing in order to overinflate their uh, popularity on the charts. Because by offering, hey, pay me $15 to buy this album, plus I'll throw in this sick hoodie um, that, has, that has the band art on it. 
And they said like, eh, that's not really the same as like a song sale. We want to try to keep it strictly to song sales and not these bundles, which are sometimes bringing in people for deals that does that reflect how popular the music is? So, so basically they're reporting more revenue. The CD is 20 bucks. The hoodie's 20 bucks. So you've doubled your, your revenue numbers and then they just look at the revenue numbers. Yeah, I think so. And exactly. Then, right. Interesting. Interesting. I, you know, another way that people can inflate on streaming is stream constantly on repeat and just let it go. Don't even listen to it. Just and let your computer play it. You just let it go. And, and I saw a, a blurb, an article talking about the, the awards and some of the, the super fans who do that for the artists got invited to their little like concert performances and shows. Oh, um, which is, it's weird. It's weird. It's like you're rewarding those people for doing that and helping like inflate your numbers. And again, I can't independently verify that claim, but, uh, cause to me, that's just seems so dumb. Like, like I'll listen to a song when I want to listen to a song. Like I wouldn't just stream it to, to, to get it up in the numbers. But if you're like a, if you're a, you know, burgeoning artist, like just convince a bunch of people to do that. Like, well, well, the billboard, their assumption must be that, well, they've listened to this song genuinely that many times because they love it so much, but we are, but you're saying like, how can we tell the difference? between a person listening to it every moment of the day that they're able to, as opposed to just like, all right, I'm shutting down uh, my work for the day, but I'm gonna leave my computer on just playing repeat of this song. And I'll come back in after like 12 hours of. Yeah. Cause they want to pump up their artist numbers and keep them on the top of the, the billboard. Cause they're on team, you know, Taylor or whatever. So that, let's dig into this question right now. What about the psychology, the, the, the effect mentally of seeing yourself on the billboard chart. I feel like from one perspective, if you know the amount of money you're making, wouldn't that be enough sort of like metric of your success for you? But there's something separate actually, even though the chart is using money data to put names there, there's something about being on the hot 100, the billboard chart that is like, probably helping you make even more money because your name is there right yeah i i mean uh and and it gets you more notoriety like i feel like day daytime tell like morning news always re has billboard artists on there that's always like something in a story about an artist that they'll mention as notoriety they don't say hey this artist is making a million dollars they say Hey, this artist is number nine on the Hot 100 chart, which again translates to money. A bit of a bit of a, you know, I don't want to say facade, but it's just like a, a way to title it without giving money numbers. Which you've mentioned before. Hey, why don't we just talk about how much money people make? Why is that such a hot button issue? Uh, it may be even worth talking about money in the context of this show for a moment. We're like, we've determined, my guess was really accurate, by the way, took me about 10 hours of work, preparation, recording session, editing, um, to prepare for that episode. If I value my time at some random number, like 30, $35 an hour sticks out to me as like a sexy number for some reason. I admit, let's make it, let's make it 36. Sexy. So, so if we could make $360 per episode Ooh. of this show every month, that would 
pay for, quote, pay for this, this enterprise, right? That would sh- would that indicate to me that the show is somehow better than it's ever been? I'm not sure. I think I have totally different metrics for that. My metrics for that are actually the conversations that I have with my friends. And one of my friends did recently tell me that the Weird Al episode was his favorite so far. Fuck yeah. Kind of exciting. Who, who is that? Let's give him a shout out. Alex. Thank you, Alex, for sharing your thoughts Alex, with me. Alex, no last name. <laughs> Very good. Thanks for sharing your thoughts. And so if you, listener, dig what we're talking about or just dig the way we're making you feel, you could give us a dollar on Patreon every month. And that would actually really help. Like if our, we're not trying to make millions from this podcast. We don't expect to. I don't think I even want to. I feel like if I was making millions from this podcast, I would find places to put that, to give it away to people, you know? Are we able to get on the Hot 100 chart with a podcast? No. There's probably some kind of podcast chart that we could pursue, but uh, it's not the Hot 100. That's just music. But if we were on the Hot 100 podcast chart, we would not be asking for your dollar. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. You could help us by giving us a dollar a month. If 360 people did that, we're done. You know, The show will be free to everybody else forever. Self-sustaining. Self-sustaining. Tony can Tony can afford to eat dinner after the show. <laughs> Back to this article that gave us specific <laughs> numbers about things. It had this doesn't really relate to the Billboard chart working itself, but it included this sentence that I have to talk about today because it it's an example of taking a preference and sort of just stating it as though it's true for all people. This is uh, radio plays are more impactful than streams, often changing the landscape of the charts once a radio-friendly song hits the air. For example, if you've ever walked into a department store and listened to what they play, it is all chart-topping music. Most of the time, this will be bubblegum garbage, but let's ignore that. That sentence really stuck out to me. I'm like, here's a blog writing about the Hot 100. And then calling most of it bubblegum garbage. But then, like, let's ignore that as though, like, that's just not a – is that not a big deal to them? Is it a thing they're kind of accepting? <laughs> what do you make of this? This sentence really kind of bothered me. Okay. Okay. I have two theories. <laughs> two theories. First theory is that this is someone – what organization? It's called uh, Inside the Industry. Inside the Industry. So this is a person with a – uh, that's a writer, a music writer, their preferences for some other type of music, but their assignment was to write this article. <laughs> and so they slid in their little op-ed right yeah, there. Yeah, I think you're right. Theory theory two is, I actually don't have another theory, but but what is what is bubblegum garbage? Yeah, I've, I've, I've heard this word, bu- uh, bubblegum pop. You heard about bubblegum pop? So there's something disparaging no. here about people who chew bubblegum, which I don't think, I'm not cool with that. I mean, like if you want to chew bubblegum, like fucking go for it. I don't care. But there's some, what what if you chew minty gum? Is that okay? (laughs) Yeah. The fresher, the better, baby. (laughs) But bubblegum, no. Yeah. I guess it's a different flavor, huh? You see, I think, is bubblegum a flavor or is bubblegum like a whole, is every flavor of gum bubble gum? Isn't bubblegum? Here's what you got to know about gum. Let's do, let's Let's dive dive into gum. gum. Let me, let's talk. So, so gum Right comes from a tree. 
It's like this sap yes. from a tree. It's like rubbery. Mm-hmm. That's what the gum base used to be. And and that is no longer the primary base for gum. In fact, there's this synthetic material called gum base. And it, and you don't even really know what it is. It's like petroleum-based, I believe. It's like a rubbery mm. synthetic type thing. And so look at your next pack of gum and look at the ingredients. And like the number one ingredient is gum base. And then look up what is gum base. Nobody knows. <laughs> oh, amazing. <laughs> Nobody knows exactly the math of the billboard calculation. Nobody knows exactly what's in gum base. So so I try to just chew natural gum now. With that's it's like actually from the tree. But the problem is it loses its flavor so fucking fast because it's like a natural like rubber thing and the sugar like bleeds out. So you need artificial gum base, artificial sugar, and you can chew that shit till your jaw falls off. But what's it doing to your balls? <laughs> That's an important question, isn't it? Like what's the stuff I'm consuming? <laughs> it is the only both, question. Both like what I'm listening to, what I'm eating. What is it doing to my ball sack? I feel like this show is is ruining your ball sack. <laughs> <laughs> I hope I hope we're nourishing whatever part of your body needs nourishing. When I when I think bubblegum pop, sorry mom, sorry mom. <laughs> it's like it's like thanks for listening. It's like insinuating that maybe I don't know, insinuating that maybe young kids listen, you know, chew a lot of bubblegum and listen to like whatever comes on the radio. I okay. feel like it's a really really dated sense. reference, you know. It's a bubblegum trash. Yeah, it's sense. like oh, so maybe it's an old guy writing it. Could be. Could, and ageism. Yeah, I don't want to disparage, you know, just because he's an old guy. But <laughs> I knew you were going to go there. <laughs> the specific thing that's wrong to me with this sentence is that, like, saying some of it's bubblegum trash, but let's ignore that, implies that somehow, like, the genericness of the music, whatever the quality of the music, that it's something that obviously we all agree about is, like, not really good. You know, mm, and that's yeah. just not true for what a lot of people think. A lot of people, let's take Taylor Swift. In one of our first episodes, you're like, I don't want to talk about Taylor Swift. I don't want the Swifties to come down to me. <laughs> and Taylor Swift has an incredibly devoted group of people who listen to her music. That doesn't describe everybody who listens to her music, but some people who listen are part of this group, the Swifties, you know, who like, and I think one of the reasons they take it so seriously, I read a piece in the New York Times magazine about this where a person went to the Eras tour and she talked to all, all girls of, all women of different ages, all these people who were there um, who were dressed as different eras of Taylor Swift um, and asking each other, like, what era are you? And um, the, one of the young people said to her, like, it doesn't matter what you're dressed like. What era are you in your heart? You know, like people are having these deep wow. conversations about like identifying all the ways that they've changed over the years as part of a unified whole of a human being. They say the the writer of this article made the point that Taylor Swift's era's concept around her music might be saying, you are that whiny middle schooler who chewed bubblegum. You are that college student who studied philosophy. You are that person who got a job at a bank later on. You are all these people all the time. And always it's like this synthesis of, and so that can be like a deep idea that can make people feel good about themselves on a daily basis. That's one of the powers of music, which I think is, shouldn't be understated as we, as we criticize things. If you reduce something like that, that might have that effect on a person to bubblegum trash, I think you're kind of reducing that person's feelings 
to bubblegum trash, as though they're not worthy enough of your consideration, you know? So now let's talk about this year's Billboard Music Awards and the people on it. Uh, we could tell you some of the people who won. We're already talking about Taylor Swift because she won Top hey, Artist. Before you, before we talk more about Taylor, do, have you ever watched the Billboard Music Awards previously? <laughs> no, I have not. And yeah, I don't. I don't. And that's think I relevant have because this year there wasn't a live broadcast. It wasn't on any broadcast television. It wasn't live streamed. Which was part of the reason we wanted to delve into it, to explore more things and like more things, part of the sort of mission of the show. And we were, I was like excited to watch this thing. <laughs> Me too. And I texted you <laughs> the other day, yesterday, I think, and I was like, Tony, how do I watch this? I've only found <laughs> random snippets of videos and I'm trying to watch the whole thing. And you said they're actually on purpose not doing that this year. They invited different artists to record performances ahead of time on their own and then invited artists to record acceptance speeches. And so on the website, just incrementally throughout the night for a couple hours, they released a new video of a performance, a new video interview, a new acceptance speech, and just kept releasing little tiny chunks at a time. I didn't mind this format so much because I'm watching with my little two-year-old Rowan and we like put on a video and he watches mesmerized as people dance and sing on stage. And then there wasn't anything to watch next. Like once the video is over, I just, okay, I've watched everything so far. So I'll just wait and we play dominoes together. And then a new video comes on and we, and we, I kind of liked that I wasn't watching a screen the whole entire time. Obviously, if you wanted the vibe of like a host or somebody telling you what the fuck was going on, not not the right kind of format for you, right? Okay, I'm going to make a syllogism here. Yep. Rowan likes Billboard Music Awards. Billboard Music Awards are bubblegum trash. Rowan likes bubblegum trash. That is a valid syllogism. <laughs> the logic, the logic is, is, uh, it holds together there. If those premises are true, if Rowan likes the Billboard Music Awards... And if the Billboard Music Awards are bubblegum trash, then yes, Rowan likes bubblegum trash. But I don't think that saying he likes the Billboard Music Awards necessarily tracks from saying that he likes flashy videos with people dancing and singing. I asked myself a question as I listen to all this music. What's similar about all this music? Why is all, is there... Bubblegum garbage. <laughs> it's all bubblegum garbage. Let's talk about, maybe if there is such a thing as bubblegum garbage... What I've often said on this show is that like that term is not descriptive of what's in the music. I'm not talking about rhythm, not talking about pitch, not talking about melody, not talking about instruments. I'm using a vague term, right? So I did a cursory analysis of some of the chord progressions. Nice. I'm and excited beats for per this. minute. Yeah. So let's go over some of this shit. What I did here too, a little unscientific um, because I'm not a scientist. I looked at the top artists, the five top artist candidates, and I looked at the five top new artist candidates and picked one song from each of them that had like a lot of listens on Spotify. 
recently I edited the playlist just a little bit to reflect some of these specific songs of these artists that were up for other awards. And so we came up with this. It's a 10 song playlist. That's only, <laughs> this actually amazed me because in my head, there's this stereotype of a hit song as being about three minutes and 30 seconds. That's like what the radio wants to play before they can run a commercial break or a new song or something that helps keep listeners engaged. Guess how long this 10 song play with playlist is. Oh man. So 10 songs, three, uh, I'm saying like 25 minutes. It's 33 minutes oh, and 50 seconds. So it's almost like exactly 10 times three minutes and 30 seconds. Man, that was my first guess, but we also talked about how songs are getting shorter due to TikTok. So that's why I went down. Seems so there are some four minute songs. The longest hit song here is four and a half minutes, but then one song is only two minutes. So there's a there's a long a lot of variety. So this is our shortest playlist yet. Normally you have shortest. to devote like an hour and a half of your life or something. <laughs> Which is a thing I'm trying to encourage you to do, listener. I'm trying to say to you that <laughs> listening to music more often, more intentionally, is gonna do unexpectedly cool things for your brain. For the premises to support that conclusion, listen to the rest of our episodes. <laughs> On this playlist is Rich Flex by Drake and 21 Savage, Fast Car by Luke Combs, Last Night by Morgan Wallen, Kill Bill by SZA, Antihero by Taylor Swift, then The New Artists, Rock in a Hard Place by Bailey Zimmerman, Delhi by Ice Spice, Son of a Sinner by Jelly Roll, Lady Gaga by Peso Pluma and some other collaborators, and Something in the Orange by Zach Bryan. The experience of listening to this playlist is actually pretty enjoyable for me because it's got something we talked about in the Weird Al episode. It's got this genre variety to it that really captures my attention throughout. We start with this hip hop song and this hip hop song, Rich Flex, is pretty wild in that it's got a lot of beat switches, a lot of different rhythmic components. It's even like changing that. tempo. It starts at like about 76 beats per minute, but gets up to like 84 or something later. So that's got, I love that variety. It really holds my attention, right? And then Fast Car by Luke Combs. This is more like kind of country rock style. It's a faster song, 98 beats per minute. It's using a pretty simple chord progression for its song almost the whole entire way through. And I'll give this away right away. Something that all these songs have in common is repetitive chord progressions, meaning no more than four total chords used. And usually those chords are used in the same order for all the different sections of the song. The country rock songs used a little bit more variation in chord structure towards like the end of their choruses. Um, to sort of, they set up this little moment where it's like building up and a rock and a hot place. And then you sing the name of the song. You got to sing the name of the song. <laughs> you got to sing the name of the song. In pop songs. Then we go to Last Night by Morgan Wallen. This is another kind of country rock style. Although this particular song has some more hip hop style, like tone quality to its drums, I would say. Mm. Seems like the drums might be electronic as opposed to played live. Um, and it's using a chord progression that is much, it's minor. It's much, uh, and it only uses these three chords. I should play these for you.
is oscillating those three chords the whole entire song, but it gets creates variety by like bringing in a heavier beat later for the chorus and things like that. Last Night and Fast Car, super similar tempos, 102 BPM to 98 BPM, almost like only four BPM different. I found that fascinating. Then we get to Kill Bill and Kill Bill by SZA is a little different in that it's the only one of these 10 songs that uses a two chord. Hmm. And it also use, it uses two chords that none of the rest of these songs use. That said, it is still using a four chord progression that repeats for the whole entire song. Maybe an interesting strategy there for someone interested like me in um, harmony that's like just a little more unusual. Well, sure, keep it unusual, but just repeat your unusual progression for the whole entire song, right? Mm. She has what we call a two, five, one, six. That progression, yeah, you know what? Maybe... Let's Sinatra play that later. It's too good. <laughs> I just saw it. I was I like, I just killed that. my ex. Yeah, yeah. Sinatra can sing that. We'll do that. This, the, we listened, I listened to this song back when we uh, did the BET Awards. Um, and it, this song, this yeah. whole album. When we learned how to say her name. Yes. We were like, <laughs> Z-A. Z-A. <laughs> Our lack of experience, as we proclaimed ignorance at the beginning of that we episode. I had ignorance. a friend recently thank me for that he's like i'm so glad you he said he said i started listening to you talk about the bt awards and i'm like how's this gonna go like does does tony know enough to talk about this and then you guys did such a good job talking about what you did know and didn't know and i was like fuck yeah this is great so thank you for sharing that feedback with me thank you friend thank you ash and that's what we're all about we're trying to be honest about what the fuck we know and what the fuck we don't know so I love this song, Kill Bill. I think it's fantastic. One criticism that maybe comes from like an anxiety demon in my own head, if this were my song, I'd be like, I don't know, I'm just like recycling the plot of a hit movie and turning it into a song. To rebut that argument, I would say that the details in the lyrics that this includes are, are just, that, that they add extra nuance to this, especially the idea Rather be in jail than alone. <laughs> I love that she makes that that distinction. It's like this is why she's almost providing added motivation for why someone would do this. Then there's then there's Antihero by Taylor Swift. And I actually had not listened to this song before yesterday. Antihero is 96 beats per minute, so right in the same um, ballpark as these other songs. Kill Bill, I didn't mention, is about 90 beats per minute. So from 90 to 100 is where four of these top artist songs are sitting. Um, can you I didn't give do us, the. Can you give us that like tempo right now? Yeah. On a on a metronome or something. Yeah, dude. I want to feel Absolutely. it. Hi. I'm the problem. It's me. At tea time. Everybody agrees. So 90, 98. That was 98, 96. Yeah, that was 98. 98. I think Antihero might be 96-ish, but yeah, these are all rough huh. estimates. So I definitely what these songs have in common that even has in common with Drake's um, song, Rich Flex, 
all of these songs, this seems to be, I think I'm, <laughs> I'm late to the party in telling you this. People could tell you this smarter than me, <laughs> but like what people really like in pop music right now is conversational delivery of lyrics. Hmm. Listen to the way I'm speaking right now. There's a lot of words and syllables that go by pretty quick. That's how we're used to forming sentences and listening to people and making sense of words. There's, I was trained as a classical vocalist and in a lot of classical music, words are treated at a completely different pace. Um, a good example might be, well, actually a good example is Frank Sinatra himself. This isn't classical music, but it's like, I think pop music that's just evolving out of the trends of classical music and Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. How many words did I just say? Four or five or something? As opposed to like, I'm the problem, it's me. At tea time, everybody agrees. I'll stare directly at the sun, but never in the mirror. I made up that melody, but that's like about how fast it goes. Words never go by that fast in Frank Sinatra tunes. It's like a totally different kind of pace mm. of delivery, right? Yeah. There's 10 words. I believe this is actually, you could point to the influence of hip hop and rap on all popular music in this characteristic of hit songs on the billboard chart. People are like, even singers, you know, Taylor Swift is primarily singing, not primarily speaking, but she's setting the rhythm of her words, the rhythmic delivery in a style that's similar to rap. Interesting. The new artists, here's an interesting thought that you could go listen to this playlist and decide for yourself. But to me, the new artists have, I don't feel like they're doing anything really all that different from the top artists, right? For me, it's like, yeah, this is all just hit music. I wouldn't call top, the top artist songs or the new artist songs as better or worse than each other, right? That kind of that language to me doesn't seem to describe what's really happening here. In the new music, we have um, two country rock songs, Rock in a Hard Place by Bailey Z and Something in the Orange by Zach Bryan that are both in 12-8. 12-8 feels like this. It's like a one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, two, got And so here's a, here's a Rock in a Hard Place. The song has this kind of dragging, almost lopey, kind of lunging feeling mm, to it because yeah. of that 12-8 meter. It's it's really great to, to express sad ideas, I think. And that's what's happening in both of these songs. They're both kind of is, uh is, they're both about the potential end of a relationship. Is 12-8 the same as 6-4? Yes. Yes, actually. Um what we write down on paper really depends on what looks most convenient to the person who writes it down. What a song sounds like could be described in multiple ways correctly. 12-8, 6-4, they'd be equivalent. There's the song Delhi by Ice Spice. This is absolutely an outlier on this list, even like beyond the Rich Flex song by Drake. It's another hit, another hip hop rap song. And, um, 
But man, it's just a lot different. Shorter, for one thing. It's only two minutes long. And Ice Spice is just kind of singing about her sexual power. She's like, everybody wants me. I just want money is the ba- the basic message of the relatable. songs I gathered. She- <laughs> relatable. <laughs> Not to me. <laughs> um, very cool song with like, it's got less beat switching than Drake's tune. It's at a much faster tempo, 140 BPM for that song. So it's like an outlier in many different ways here. I was digging Ice Spice's just like tone of delivery too. It like, it's smooth. It's easy to listen to. Mm-hmm. I love the, I love in hip hop too, the um, forced rhymes is like an academic term for it where you rhyme things like, uh, actually Taylor Swift has one here, mirror and hero, mirror, hero. Mm. Those kind of like you have kinda, the same. You kind of s- like yeah. mirror, hero. Yeah, ex- <laughs> exactly. A little bit. Um, sweet. Then Jelly Roll. Jelly Roll. What do you think of Jelly Roll? I want to get your thought on Jelly Roll first. I, I like Jelly Roll. I had a, a coworker recommend him. And uh, yeah, that song, Son, Son of a Sinner. Uh-huh. Great, you know, for me, great track. Nice. Um, you know, relate, relatable topic. And again, I'm going to come back to lyrics. All these songs have great lyrics. And, and we're going to talk about that. But Jelly Roll, I, I dig it. And what sticks out about Jelly Roll on this list, too, is like he's using explicitly Christian ideas in his lyrics. There's a whole category of the Billboard Music Awards for like top Christian artists. But Jelly Roll's not over there. He's sort of like taken his Christianity and those themes into the the top 100 charts, which I found Hmm. fascinating. I wondered about people who might listen to that song and be off-put by it, as opposed to people who might listen to it and be refreshed by the inclusion of those ideas, you know? I've always wondered, like, what makes Christian rock? I mean, obviously, there's some clearly Christian rock songs that are that are singing about the gospel and whatever. But like, if you're talking about religious themes in your song and talking about Jesus, does that make it Christian rock, or do you have to like declare that, hey, I'm a Christian rock band and like, you know, abide by some sort of code. I, like, That's an I don't incredibly understand. awesome question that I feel like we have to do a whole episode on. Eventually. Okay. Well, we'll because I've actually sung time. a lot of Christian rock songs as part of my work in churches. And I've thought about this and I have lots of ideas and we should talk about it another day. Great. Good, good deferral. Season two, season two. I'm just a long-haired son of a sinner singing up there. Looking for some new ways that I can get gone. Yeah. Yeah, he sings so um sweetly and wistfully about drug use that he's trying to stop. Um, yeah. Which is an interesting subject for a song, given how many songs actually sometimes like sing about like, you know, we're using drugs and it feels great. <laughs> <laughs> I do a lot of drugs which is this, and I got money. Which is this next tune, Peso Pluma. Peso Pluma, the song Lady Gaga. I looked up the translation to this too. Are you fluent enough in Spanish still that as you listen to this, you're like making sense of it as you listen? No. <laughs> right on. I was about to lie to you, but I'm not. Proclaim, be honest. Don't, don't pretend <laughs> to know what you don't know, brother. <laughs> but yeah, from the translation I read, this was kind of talking about a lot of different displays of wealth and... And different drugs to use and how fun that is. And just kind of, you know, classic. It uses the same chord progression. Not as, Christian rock. <laughs> as the Morgan Wallen song, Last Night. 
but it's a very different tempo. It's actually with Delhi by Ice Spice. It's 140 BPM like that. Interesting. This might have been my favorite. Listening to Peso Pluma was my favorite experience. I think because it, it's just like a gimme. I play the trombone. There are trombone solos in like every Peso Pluma song. And that just really tickles me. I love it. Do, do you think it was also because it was in a language that isn't your first language? And, and we've talked when in the Iceland episode, yep. We, yep. we talked about how cool those songs are. And, you know, partly because we don't understand the lyrics and, and one of your things you like the maybe i don't say the least but that that sometimes bothers you about pop music is the generic lyrics or the repetitive lyrics or and i think what it is even more specific than the generic lyrics i don't feel like the lyrics mean anything to me and my life and if one of my preferences is to listen to songs that have lyrics that affect my life and my mind pop music often isn't delivering that for me right so a pop song in a different language you just appreciate the music and, and you don't worry about the lyrics. Exactly. That's where I start appreciating a lot of this pop music too. I listen on my nice studio monitors and my recording studio here. And I'm like, and I just start thinking about the mixing. I'm like, oh, listen to that echo of the lead vocal played like a measure later on the left channel. Listen to the tone of that bit, like getting into the tone quality of the music. That stuff really turns me on way more than nice. the words. So yes, not knowing the words allows me to focus on the fun strum of the acoustic guitar and then just be taken away by the this trombone it's a valve trombone too so it can play like faster than i'm used to being able to play myself and just cool stuff last tune and zach bryan won the best uh top new artist so he was the new artist whose music made the most money and he had this song something in the orange and i was i had the reaction that probably many people have all the time that i'm actually trying to fight against in myself when i found that he had the best song i'm like huh his was my least favorite I'm like how could <laughs> how could that be the best right it's like and it's not mm. really it's the thing that made the most money right if i'm thinking about it as the some universal best which again i, I need to proclaim that sometimes i don't even uh practice the things that i preach you know it can be hard to get these ideas into your everyday behavior so i had that brief little moment of being like huh this song sucks. It's like, but not really. <laughs> and then I listen to it again and I'm like, I don't know. It's a, it's nice. It's actually a nice metaphor. Something in the orange. He's like, the sun is coming up on another day that he hasn't spent with his uh, romantic partner. And he's like, I think it's over, man. That's basically what he's saying there. Hmm. You want to talk more about the words of all these songs? I'd love yeah. to hear your thoughts. Real quick. You know, a lot of them were, were, breakup songs or, yep. or you know yep. and and that seems to hit popular on on the charts or there's some sort of relationship tumult um it, you know also a lot of them and this is subjective but are cleverly written they have a lot of wordplay and sort of a, a double entendre mm -hmm. um you know for example the the morgan wallen one that you you switched to morgan wallen one and both have good wordplay but but it was talking about what you did last night, and I don't think it's our last night. Yes, I noticed the same thing. And I didn't dive deep and look at songwriting credits or, or anything, but you know, it's it's come to my attention that in the pop music world, a lot of times, and maybe maybe the larger music world, there's these groups of of artists out there who are songwriters that write songs for other artists, and there's like big collaborative effort. So one of my favorite groups, Blink One Eighty Two, they've released a new album called One More Time. A lot of awesome songs 
they had a ton of help writing uh, all those songs. It wasn't just Mark, Tom, and Travis writing the, the songs. Does that matter? I don't know. But, you know, growing up, you, you love your artists and you just kind of always attribute everything to them, not the team behind them. Um, Baby Reksha, or however you say that, B-E-B-R-E-X-H-A, um, she, I did some research into her because like she was like, I, I started to listen to her music and she was featured with all these artists that I knew. I'd actually heard a ton of her music, didn't realize. Nice. It. And I was like, so I was, I was looking some up about her and she, she kind of got her start as a songwriter. You know, she was in a, in a group and groups here or there. And now she's sort of a solo artist and, and maybe she still writes songs for people. Awesome. Um, one of my favorite artists, John Bellion he writes a lot of songs and, and in one of his, but he's a, he's a musical artist now, but he has a, a line in one of his songs about writing a song and selling it to Christina Aguilera. Uh, but then Beyonce called and wanted the song and he, he was all torn up about like, Oh my gosh, Queen B wanted my song and I'd already given it away. You know? and, <laughs> and so it's just, it's so interesting to me that there's, there's all these really talented people out there, musicians who are writing songs that then get picked up and and probably tweaked and changed and produced by these these pop artists with great voices and great teams and great production teams that then put out these hits and and I don't know if it's like again I don't know if that's good or bad um but, but again as as a as when I've known less back in my life you just think the artist does it all and and for some reason I guess I have a preference for that or or a affinity to like yeah you wrote that song and it's true to you even though Sinatra didn't write all his music, he he performed, and that's been Sinatra never wrote anything. He, you know, he only sang. Yeah, so so that was that was just something I was observing and and thinking about while right. listening to these things. Thoughts on that? I I think that's really valuable, honestly. But you want to you want to know. I want people to know why they like things. And and so when you can be honest with yourself, and you can say, I like this song. Because the person wrote it. That doesn't make it superior to all other songs ever, but it does make it a superior song for me. It's a song I want to seek out and listen to because I feel like I, f I feel like I'm getting something really connective and emotive out of this performer performing the thing they created. That's legit. Whereas other people might really prefer the the big teams of people who come up with songs together. I just did a quick check because I forgot to compare this. Only two songs on this playlist are written by a single songwriter, and it's the song Fast Car, which is written by Tracy Chapman um, for Luke Combs, and then the song Something in the Orange, which is Zach Bryan performing a song that he wrote that he has soul credit on. So the only other question I really asked myself about to organize my thoughts for this episode was this. Since we are engaged in trying to like more things ourselves— and encouraging people who listen and other people to like more things also. Because we argue that by liking more things, you'll actually get a better idea, a more accurate idea of the diversity of what's out there. And you might therefore become an even more tolerant and cooperative human to other people and in situations where you're, you might come up with preconceptions. And if you practice getting through your preconceptions with music... Where else in your life can you get through preconceptions? It might be a short argument for why this could be good for you. So if you don't like pop music, should you? 
Is it worth the time? I wonder about this question for myself a lot, actually, because I definitely like pop music more now than I ever have. When I was back in college getting trained as a classical vocalist, I loved to shit talk pop music. And I look back at that now and I think like, what's the point? Again, like Cole Kushner from Dissect saying, if something doesn't resonate with you, why are you going to spend all this time like trashing it? Why not just move on to the stuff you like? So, but then more specifically in this instance of like, if you don't like it and we're encouraging you to like, listen to things in different ways and different situations so that you might like it, maybe you could spend a little more time with that. And here's another clarifying question that you might have a good answer to. Do you care more about relating to other people through your shared experiences or do you care more about sharing your different experiences with each other. You know, my first thought when you asked, is it worth it to spend time trying to like pop music was yes, because that can help you relate to people, um, to, to more yes. people. And you know, so just like <clears throat> being a guy, there's an expectation that you know about sports. Not necessarily, but a lot of guys like sports and <laughs> yeah, talk sports yeah. and you talk about stats and this player and that player and this team and that team. And you just shoot the shit about sports, even if you've just met, right? That's a good small talk thing. And it helps you relate to people. And I think pop music <clears throat> can be, you know, the, a similar topic for that. Now, on the other hand, talking about you know what's one of the reasons to like more things is you can spread the love to more artists maybe get more money to more artists do the pop artists need your your attention if you're not already there with them are they in need of of more of your dollars and and i would say probably not i'm sure they'd take it i agree yeah Um, yeah I think you've brought up a critical distinction because I basically, I basically would say about this question, you should like whatever you want to like. Yeah, that's the right answer. Learning to like a thing because it will help you relate to other people—that is a good reason to like it. And I think that's why I will continue to check in with pop music, you know. But because of this second thing <laughs> you've brought up, that like if we want to bring a lot more love and economic value to other kinds of music that don't already get it. There's no pressure to weigh on to weigh in more on pop music, so, you know. So perhaps you will stream pop music, but you won't buy CDs or listen to it on the radio. Exactly. Yeah, I think so. For, if that Spotify, I um, I write off Spotify as a business expense because I consider it like research. You know, it's like a thing that I I use to teach. I pay for an ASCAP license and everything too, so that I have the rights to uh, work with songs in my studio as I teach people lessons in the business. And so um, Spotify is this really excellent resource for learning about all sorts of different kinds of music, right? It's beautiful for that. But I'm moved by something, an article you shared recently where someone's like, nah, I don't listen to Spotify. I buy albums and create memories with specific music and keep going back to it. Yeah, the, yeah, that's cool stuff. I dig that. There's a bookshelf behind you in your in your camera there. And that bookshelf has curated books, you know, that we have created that are that, that are there for a reason, that are from your experiences yes. and whatever. 
And that's what that CD collection can be. It's part of your your lived experiences in your life where Spotify is just access to twice as much music as you can listen to in <laughs> finite time. In a day. Right, right. I bought an iPod many years ago. Um, like I had an iPod and it stopped working. And then I'm in like, I must be like 27 years old or stuff. And I'm like, I'm buying an iPod again. A lot of people, I think my, my partner especially looked at me like, why are you buying an iPod? You got your fucking phone. And I'm like, because the iPod is this device where I can just store music that I've purchased, music that's really dear and important to me. And it's this really curated it's this culled down list of what to listen to. I'm not looking at every option of things I, I to listen to. I can't tell you how many yeah. times I go to Spotify and I'm like, <clears throat> I don't even know what to search for. What should I do? <laughs> and then I just exactly, listen to a playlist dude. and it's just like, play my liked songs for the hundred fucking thousandth time. So, yeah, so what we're asking you to do here <laughs> is a little hard. It's time consuming. It's going to take time for you to think about what do I like? What could I like? And then to find that stuff and spend time with it and really learn to love it, right? We're going to argue that the benefits of doing that are beyond your wildest dreams. I'm convinced. <laughs> You're convinced. Let's sing a little bit of Kill Bill. I know I said Pesa Pluma was my favorite. Sizzling and Kill Bill might actually be my favorite. I might kill my ex Not the best idea Your new lover's next How'd I get here? I might kill my ex I still love you though Rather be in jail than I might kill my ex Not the best idea your new lover's next, how'd I get here? I might kill my ex, I still love you though Rather be in jail than alone <laughs> so good, dude The scatting was fucking next level, well done Thanks for listening. Again, if you'd like to value us with a little bit of currency, because the currency is available for you to spare, go to patreon.com slash philosophically sound and subscribe a dollar a month, $4, $5, $10 a month. We have different tiers on there that we are updating in the next couple of weeks here. 
but there are different rewards, different bonus contents, and most importantly, it's a way to show us that you value us in a particular way. Just by listening, you show us value too. I want you to know that. But if you have money to spare, your money would be very helpful for helping us learn what to do with this show and, and push it out to more people and craft even more elegant syllogisms. So, patreon.com slash philosophically sound. You can also listen to our podcast feed, look for instructions on uh, tips for singing the theme song to our show and tips for recording the theme song. Thank you, Luke, for already having done that. We will take your voice recording and I will audio engineer it into the um, into the theme song so that as the podcast listenership grows, the theme song literally grows with it. I just really like that idea. I think it'll be very fun. And we love fan mail. Send us fan mail. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. If anyone emails us, we'll talk about it on the show if you want us to do that. You know, If you don't want us to, tell us that too. But send us your requests, critiques, questions, jokes to philosophicallysoundpodcast at gmail.com. This podcast is researched, produced, and recorded by Gus and Tony. Audio editing and musical analysis by Tony. Some bonus audio editing by Gus every once in a while. And Gus, I want to know, what am I? Who are we? We are fucking professionals. professionals.